0: This morning we're going to talk about salvation ironies. You might even call them Christmas ironies. Things that just don't seem to be the way they should be, but the more you think about them, the more impactful and profound they become. So salvation ironies from Luke chapter 2, Christmas ironies from Luke chapter 2. We'll look at eight or nine of them. And I realize I want to be sympathetic. Some of you are thinking, I just can't deal with the Christmas thing. Um, it's it's a little bit overwhelming, it's a little bit much. Maybe it'll alleviate some of your stress if I tell you that it's okay, Christmas wasn't on December 25th anyway. Does that help or make it worse? Um, Jesus more than likely, more than more than more than likely uh, was not born on December 25th anyway. Uh, Constantine had a bright idea, wink wink, uh, to take a pagan holiday called Saturnalia And to clean up paganism by just adding Christianity and saying, that's when we'll do it. Uh, I think he ruined paganism and Christianity. But anyway, that's another conversation. Just know that what's important is that Jesus was born in real time, in real space, on an actual date, the actual date we actually don't know. And if God wanted us to know, he would have told us the specific date, but today we're focusing on these great Christmas ironies, these great salvation ironies, because indeed as Christians we are grateful for the essential reality of God becoming one of us so that we might be redeemed. And so let's begin looking at these things that are ironic and then they end up being profound. Number one, the irony of Caesar's decree the irony of caesar's decree as we look at these i hope it causes us to say i want to be like the i want to be like the angels and i want to be like the shepherds in worshiping the more i learn about these ironies the irony of caesar's decree verse 1 says in those days a decree went out from caesar augustus you're meant to be impressed by that caesar augustus mr power Mr. Authority, Mr. in charge of things. That all the world, all the known Roman world under the Roman uh, rule of Caesar Augustus should be registered. This was the first registration or the first census when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And you say, what's ironic about that? What's ironic about that is we're talking about Caesar issuing a decree that there would be a census. And the irony of that is, that's going to mean that Mary and Joseph are going to have to go to Bethlehem because Joseph's from Bethlehem and he has to register. And that means Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem, which is where He needs to be born if He's the Messianic Savior and the King. And who would have thunk it? Orchestrated by the hand of, of Mr. Anti-God. Mr. I'm in charge. I'm the King of Kings. And I'm the Lord of Lords. But I'm going to issue a decree that's going to force prophetic fulfillment. That's ironic. It's meant to be seen as ironic. As one person said, God was taking Caesar's pawns and moving them to checkmate. I like that. Someone else put it this way, Caesar was ruling, but God was in charge. That's the irony, the beauty of the irony. It wasn't that Joseph came up with this kind of plan, well, I know the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, so if we can just kind of orchestrate things and get things worked out that we're going to eventually have you have the baby there. No, the anti-God, king of kings, Roman ruler forces it to happen because god is ultimately in charge of the whole thing the irony of caesar's decree now i hate to take you out of the christmas spirit so some of you can just check out for a few minutes because i know you're feeling the vibe Um, but i I should mention because of verse two this is under uh, quirinius and this is a favorite place for bible antagonists and unbelievers to to question the historical accuracy of luke's account And I don't really want to get into the details of it. Uh, I would just give you a couple of of things that might be helpful later if you're researching it. Um, The reality is, Luke has done a great job with his history. He's writing for an educated man named Theophilus. It would make no sense for him to make a huge glaring mistake in chapter 2. The question is, what about Quirinius, and, and, and what func- what, what, exactly how was Quirinius functioning, and, and what, what about the dating of all of this, and, and, and what about the, 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 the census? and Well, there's a census later in chapter 5 of Acts as well, and you're trying to put the pieces together, and we try to match toes with the antagonist unbeliever who says, you know what, I can't support what you're saying in the Bible with extra-biblical discoveries in history. I'm not feeling the spirit of Christmas anymore. I feel like Bible lecturer, dude. So some of you just need to keep sleeping and keep checked out. Let me me say that Christians have come up with multiple explanations that might explain exactly what Quirinius this is talking about and exactly which census and how it fits into things and how the grammar works and all that. I'm just going to give you a word of caution. Be careful about building your defense for the legitimacy of Scripture based upon all these extra-biblical historical discoveries? Because none of them is absolutely conclusive. There are good answers. By the way, if you really wanted to get into into this in your spare time, buy Daryl Bach's 2100-page technical commentary on Luke. Have fun with that. Um, If you really want to deal with the issues, though, he does. He does a good job of giving the different views and the different explanations. But he's wise in saying, Christians, be careful we don't have that much extra-biblical data to say this is the answer. There are multiple possibilities, and maybe we might learn more extra-biblical history later, and we can say this is absolutely the way to answer. I've already said more than I want to say, but I'll just say one more thing. Remember, maybe you don't know this, I say, I would say remember too often. You're like, remember? I never heard that before. Anyway, <laughs> Some of you have heard me say before, and if so, remember otherwise, first time. There was no such person in history as Pontius Pilate, supposedly, for a long time, by anti-Bible antagonists. So they proved the Bible was historically inaccurate because Pontius Pilate never existed in the first century, and so on and so forth. And that caused Christians, some of them, to come up with really weird explanations. It caused some Christians to say, well, I guess it's not historically accurate. And they gave away the farm. The interesting thing is, extra biblical history and archaeology, putting them in the same category, always end up catching up with the Bible. Pontius Pilate, today, the unbelievers who said there was no such person look stupid. And the believers who came up with weird explanations look stupid too. Because the reality is, even today, unbelievers will tell you, Pontius Pilate, real guy, in time, in space, in history. We didn't have this archaeological discovery before, but today you'll go to Israel and you'll hear from unbelievers boasting how great it is we have this from the first century with Pontius Pilate's name on it because we knew he was a historical figure. So that's my long way of taking you out of the Christmas spirit, of, of saying, trust your Bible, Examine it, allow it to be tested by history, extra-biblical and likewise. But don't panic. Don't panic when you say, I don't know exactly how this fits. Well, sorry to do that to you. I commend to you, Daryl Box, 2,100 pages. Um, Boil it down to one page for me, would you? That would be helpful. Let's move on. More irony would be number two, the irony of Bethlehem. The irony of Bethlehem. Verse 3 says, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So wherever you're from, you're going to go back to your your lineage, your heritage. Verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. That's about 90 miles, quite a little trek with you and your pregnant wife. Because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. probably by now, his wife who was with child, but they hadn't, as we might say, consummated the marriage. She's still a virgin. And so instead of being called wife, she's his betrothed. But they're on this journey, by now they've had a wedding. And so there they go, and they go to Bethlehem. And you say, Pat, why is that ironic? Okay, just just think for a minute, if you've been with us recently, and if not, I'll remind you, they go from Nazareth, which is wrong side of the tracks, where you don't want to be from. Think of the place you don't like. You know, If you're from Omaha, you don't like Iowa. And if you're from Iowa, you don't like Omaha. So whatever. It's all fair game. But it's worse than that. that that's the place where people lived where they might have even had some you know, religious weakness. Too close to all those Gentiles. They're from Nazareth and they make a really significant journey to that great, wonderful, very important place, Bethlehem. Not Bethlehem, house of bread. Oh, we're going to take a special trip to the to, to Breadville because they, they got a lot of clout and a lot of power because you know what they do there? They make bread. Bethlehem is a nowhere town. Bethlehem is acknowledged even in the Bible as, okay, not the wrong side of the tracks. It's just it's not even on the map. And they're going there and you say... Why would Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, be heading to Bethlehem? That's, that's ironic. You're going from worse to bad, or, or, or bad to insignificant. Bethlehem? My brother pastors Bethlehem Bible Church, and he kind of thinks it's funny. You know, Nowhereville Bible Church. <laughs> Bread Bible Church. Now today it has significance because of the irony. Because Bethlehem is significant. If you turn to Micah in your Bible, you'll see Bethlehem is significant. You don't need to go there right now, but 1 Samuel. Bethlehem is significant because in 1 Samuel chapter 16, that's where Samuel anoints David as king. This becomes vital and crucial that they go to Nowhereville, Bethlehem because of the heritage and background. That's where David was anointed as king where he was officially acknowledged. Uh, they would often use anointing, symbolic kind of thing. If you're a priest or you're a king and now you're going to enter into that certain office and there's going to be a ceremony with the anointing of oil and now you're the guy. Jesus needs to go to Bethlehem. Even though it's an insignificant place, it has a significant history because of David. And if you, do turn, if you would turn to Micah chapter 5. It's important that this is the messianic place. It seems strange, but if you have your mind turned on and you're thinking in biblical terms, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, this is exactly where he needs to be born. This is not because Joseph and Mary were trying to, to orchestrate some sort of stunt or some kind of plan. Here she is in her ninth month of pregnancy. She's ready to give birth, so they don't want to be separated. They want to be together, and so they're heading there. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little, I told you that the Bible even says it's insignificant, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So it's got to reach even further back than David, it's got to be more significant. It's a messianic prophecy. The irony is, they're going to Bethlehem. It's a nowhere place. But actually, it's a somewhere place. It's important. It's an important place. How many of you have been to Bethlehem? Some of you have been to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a... I thought I was in a Tom Clancy movie when I was in Bethlehem. Um, I don't remember which Tom Clancy movie, but I, I was ready for the white Suburbans to you know, come out and for missiles to be shot down on me. And um, It's still an insignificant place other than the fact that Jesus was born there and it's, it's Palestinian-occupied, not Jewish-occupied. They want you to come there because of money. But you go there today and you won't like it. You won't like it because Constantine's mom, mothers are powerful. She said, in effect, that's the place where Mary gave birth. Build a church there. And now today, thousands and thousands of people stand in line so they can kiss the ground where Mary gave birth and, in effect, worship the ground. And it's unsettling and troubling for you as a Christian because you want to say, get up. Get up. He's at the right hand of the Father. Worship him. But the reason I bring it up is to say it's still a small, insignificant town, and if this hadn't happened there, it would be totally insignificant. And I mention it to say, isn't it interesting how this significant, great place where he needed to be born is then hijacked by the devil, and it's not about Jesus, it's about the floor. And uh, just remember that just because something is perverted and, and used wrongly doesn't mean that it in and of itself isn't good and right. I have to remind people, I would remind myself if I were there, just because there's all the shenanigans going on, now perverting this doesn't mean that something great and significant didn't happen here, because it did. You have the incarnation happening there. Amazing. In some ways, I like it that the place is kind of messed up. In some ways, I kind of like it that I think I'm in clear and present danger or whatever it might be. And you think, this doesn't seem to be like the place where Jesus would be. Because it didn't seem like the place Jesus would be. It's insignificant. But according to prophetic fulfillment, according to that's where David was anointed, it needs to be in Bethlehem. Number three, another irony, the irony of the manger. Verse six says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and and laid him in a manger. Read feed trough, read animal trough, because there was no place for them in the inn. The irony of the manger is as soon as you're done reading verse 7, it's as if then you should stop and go, what? What are you talking about? King of kings, Lord of lords, prophetic fulfillment. He's the one. And and you know what? There wasn't a place for them. And when he was born, they put him in the feed trough. Totally irony. Total irony. The manger. I mean, I'm thinking manger. You know, we think typically it's like, oh, yeah, the manger. You know, I go to my grandmother's house every Christmas time. It was one of my favorite things. We'd fight over who got to do it, and we'd get out the nativity. She had this cool nativity, A-frame you know and and you who best you know who got to put Jesus out in this nice little pristine kind of deal it may have been car- carved in the, in the stone in the ground because it's where animals eat <laughs> or or made out of wood either way but the idea is this is where the animals eat the idea isn't isn't all romanticized this isn't all wonderful a might have been in a cave because that's where they often uh kept their animals so you read this and you go Does not compute, does not compute, does not compute. Because it's meant to be ironic. The great King Jesus laid in a manger? Laid in a manger, what? Do you notice that it it says in verse 7 to give birth to her firstborn son? Now maybe it's not intentional. But in my mind, I can't help but make the mental associations. Her firstborn, because she has other children, I think in chapter 8, we'll learn about Jesus' brothers. Her firstborn, mentally for me, sets off sirens. It says firstborn. Her firstborn is the firstborn. Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is firstborn of all creation. Doesn't mean he was the first person ever born. It's talking about preeminence. He is the one. He is the ultimate one. And so mentally I'm thinking to myself, her firstborn born in a barn. And he's the firstborn king of kings and lord of lords. This is strange. This is odd. What a welcoming party. Someone put it this way, Arkent Hughes, who's going to be here I think next month at our conference conference. Uh, the smell of birth, mixed with the stench of manure and pungent straw, made a contemptible mix of smells. And you go, ah, oh. you know, it's like when you go to another place, you go to an, another country, and, and you take pic- bring back pictures, and some of them are awesome. I usually would say, you know, well, the one thing you're missing here are the here uh, are, are the sounds and the what? Yeah, I wish those pictures were scratch and sniff. <laughs> Because you go, oh man, it doesn't do it justice. The pictures look pretty. If you could hear the chaos, and if you could smell it, you'd think differently. You'd think I was on a vacation when I went there. It wasn't a vacation. Imagine what this w- would have been like. Born in a barn, laid in a feed trough. Yikes. What a welcoming party. Let me ask you this. Knowing what you know. What should the welcoming party have been like? Yeah, I'll give you a hint too. This morning, Pastor Mike Grimes read from Philippians chapter 2. Something that's going to become reality with the second coming. Tongues confessing, every tongue confessing, agreeing with God that he is king of kings and Lord of lords, all glory going to him. That should have been the welcoming party. And that's what I mean by the irony. You say, that's how it should have been. And instead it's, you know, or something. You're going, what in the world? This is so wrong. They've got it all wrong. J.C. Ryle, who was just so very quotable, said this to help us understand. We see here the grace and condescension of Christ. Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should have reason enough to wonder. But to become poor to the very poorest of mankind, and lowly, as the very lowliest, this is a love that passeth knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. I like that good image. What, what, what an act of grace and condescension. God stooping down. He would have been stooping down if Jesus would have come to a huge palace. From His throne in glory... But he comes and he's born in a barn. No pomp, no circumstance. Oh, how irony. Or oh, how ironic. He's the humble servant king. A fourth irony would be the irony of the shepherds. Sometimes we we either romanticize the shepherds or we demonize the shepherds. And you'll get it in commentary. So you get both sides. Shepherds, man, they're like the worst guys on earth shepherds oh you know they like sheep and they're kind and soft and gentle and they were the best ones, so god chose them i would just advise you to try to be balanced um i think a good a a good uh happy medium would be um they're working class sinners (laughs) you can find some things that are bad about shepherds and you can find things that are good about shepherds Point being, I think, here is he didn't go to royalty. He went to ordinary people. Maybe a little below ordinary at times. Which is meant to make a profound point about irony. He didn't go to the kings. He didn't go to the great ones. He didn't go to those who think somehow they deserve salvation. He goes to the shepherds. Look at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, to shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, shepherds. And they were filled with great fear. I think it's meant to be surprising to us. God works in mysterious ways. And if I were planning it, I wouldn't have sent the welcoming crew of angels to the shepherds. And you probably wouldn't have either. But he does. And it's going to make more sense as to why he does it in just a moment. Let's go to number five, a fifth irony, the irony of the gospel. Verse 10 says, and the angel said to them, to the shepherds of all people, fear not for behold, I bring you good news, good gospel news. It's gospel. Literally, I bring you gospel news. I bring you the gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. And I think that's why he says what he says at the end of verse 10 for all the people because he's using shepherds. You could get confused and think, well, if he went to royalty, this is for royalty. This is for the smart people. If he would have gone to the, to, to the special uber-duber religious priestly class, it's then, then he's a savior for those kind of people. He goes to the shepherds, and the announcement is, I bring you gospel news, good news of great joy. That's what it's going to lead to. And it's not just for certain kinds of people. It's for all the people, even shepherds. It's amazing. It's ironic. The gospel is ironic. Stop and think about how ironic the gospel is. The good news that you can be reconciled to God. You, a sinner, can be reconciled to God. Oh, how is that going to happen? I'm going to work really hard at it. Or how is that going to happen? Some great and mighty, powerful king is going to come and just mow everybody down and say, all right, I'll take you. I mean, the irony of the gospel, you, you have this great, great, Eternal Son of God, becoming one of us, born in a barn, laid in a feed trough. Oh, not only that, then he the irony of the cross is He's born to die. We'll talk more about that. The gospel is ironic, and it's wonderful and great, and, and it's, it brings great joy. It brings great joy for all different kinds of people. Even shepherd kinds of people. The irony of the gospel is amazing. Number six, the irony of titles. Verse 11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Three major titles there. We could make the city of David almost into a title because you could say that he's of the line of David, but let's not do it right now. Let's do Savior Christ Lord. In context, man, that's ironic. That's ironic. I don't want to just keep repeating myself, but remember the setting, remember the context, remember the food trough, remember the the smells. And who is born amidst the the odiferous, scary, lonely, animal-infested, who knows what else thing going on? He is none other than the Savior, the Rescuer, the Deliverer. As Matthew says, the one who will save his people from their sins. This baby? Not only is he the Savior, he's, he's the Christ. Very familiar, if you're reading your Old Testament, the Messiah, the anointed one, the ultimate king, the fulfillment of those prophecies. He's the greater David. This guy? What? Mom and dad couldn't even find a place to stay. And he's the Lord, the kurios in the Greek New Testament, the sovereign. That title that is used for God that's ironic those titles that's who we're talking about then in verse 12 and this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger just please just stop for a second probably reading too much into this maybe reading too much into it maybe not not sure But just think about 11 and 12 for a second. Let's just pretend like we don't have 13 for a minute. Savior, Christ, Lord. And there's a sign. I can, I can prove this to you. And the, the, the proof is, uh, verse 12, you're going to find a baby um, wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's pretty ordinary. That's how they did it then. Um, lying in a animal feed trough. Now, I don't want to be sacrilegious and have God strike me dead. But just momentarily, I just go, yeah, that's a sign, all right, you know. You know, <laughs> wink, wink. You know, I, c- could you do a little bit better than that? I mean, because I'm thinking to myself, so, so this is the long-awaited Messiah, and He's the one, He's the King, He's the sovereign Lord. And you're going to know that this is true, because when you go to this place, over by this other place that's an insignificant place, you're going to find a baby with a bunch of smelly animals around it. And they're mad at him because he's laying on their food. <laughs> you know, I'm, just, I'm just stressing it out a little bit, but okay. Now we know the true intent though. When we keep reading, we talk about the irony of angelic praise. Now the sign becomes more significant. You, if you were one of those shepherds, you would have been so glad for the angelic praise to, to have the, the sign being backed up with some, some, some might and power. Number seven, the irony of angelic praise. Verse 13 says, and suddenly, You know, just when you thought, that's not much of a sign. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And you're going, now that's a sign. I am terrified, you know. I dropped my shepherd's crook and I've got all kinds of weird things happening in my body because I just saw this amazing glimpse into heaven and heaven is affirming the sign. This is exciting. This is extraordinary. This is an amazing reality. The angels are praising. I so love the fact that they are doing this for a homeless baby. (laughs) A seemingly homeless baby. It's helping us to see the irony and and the point that's behind it all, that he's more than meets the eye. I, I, I so love verse 14 and learning about, about the reality of glory to God in the highest. I want you to love the reality too. What brings glory to God in the highest? In our context here, one of the things that brings glory to God, magnification to, of God, praise to God, is the great reality of the incarnation. The eternal Son humbling himself and becoming a human being so that he might save his people from their sins brings magnification, praise, and glory to God. God likes Christmas (laughs) because it's about his son, it's about his son. And what do we say then? We say, God, you are gracious. God, you are to be praised. God, you are to be thanked. Bless you. Praise you. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for salvation. What am I doing? I'm glorifying God. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in heaven for this. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. One goes with the other. He brings peace to us because of the work of Christ. And that causes us to glorify Him. The incarnation brings peace on earth. Here's an interesting historical note. During this time frame, during this era, uh, in Rome, something was uh, known and called the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana. P-A-X Romana. And the Romans often praised the emperor because the emperor had brought, ready? Peace on earth. Conquering, providing, overseeing. He's the king of kings, the lord of lords. He has brought peace on earth. Pax Romana. Oh, the irony. In light of what's happening here, Jesus comes. Glory to God in the highest, the angels say, and peace on earth among those whom he, with He is pleased. It's very ironic, intentionally so. You might want to jot down Colossians 1, verse 20. In Colossians 1, 20, it's moving beyond the incarnation. And it says, Through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, that was what got my attention, making peace by the blood of His cross. So now we have a little bit of a fuller picture. The incarnation in and of itself isn't going to bring the peace, but in thinking about what the implications are and all that's going to be involved, He's born to die. When you look at the baby born, you say, there's going to be peace on earth. With a view toward His whole work, including His, Crosswork brings peace peace between who peace between whom well we're short-sighted if we say peace with one another that's included we're talking about peace between god and us like romans 5 talks about which then does break down the dividing wall amongst people like us and we can find peace with each other because we found peace with god Angelic praise, praising the one who's in a feed trough because he is the one who secures peace on earth and brings glory to God. Now some not-so-ironic details. In verses 15 to 20, let's read our way through it. Verse 15 says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I'll bet they said that. <laughs> verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in, the ma- in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. I mean, they're, they're going to explain it. They're going to talk about the peace. They're going to talk about the good news of great joy that they learned about back in verse 10. Then 18 says, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Their minds are reeling. Their jaws are open. They're wondering. Verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. But the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Verse 19 is fascinating, huh? It's kind of out of the norm. It's meant to kind of catch our attention and think. She responded differently. Maybe we'd say she responded in her own way doesn't tell us the meaning of that. I don't know the meaning. Once I'm bored talking to Jesus, <coughs> I'll ask Mary about what she was thinking then. <laughs> but it is fascinating. There's a there's a a response of apparent humility we could guess. She's She's trying to take it in. We we do know later in Jesus' earthly ministry there are times when, when Mary is in disagreement with Jesus. So these are things she doesn't have all sorted out. She's been a teen mother who's just given birth, who's got a lot going on in her mind, and there's a lot of ironies going on. You know, you just heard from an angel. Now, you've been pregnant and you haven't had sex. Um... Bethlehem um, 90 mile journey with your new husband there's a lot going on in her mind and Luke acknowledges that and then the irony of circumcision we see this number eight and eighth irony would be in verse 21 at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, They, weren't, they didn't always wait to name the child. Um, but this is what happened to John, I believe, if memory serves me correctly. This is what happens to Jesus here. But do notice that he was circumcised at the end of eight days. So that means what? That, that means they're, they're under the law started with Abraham, and then it carries its way through under Moses. They're, they're good Jews. And so the baby is circumcised after eight days. And you say, why is that ironic? Why is it ironic that Jesus was circumcised after eight days? And you have to say, well, what, what did circumcision do? What did circumcision symbolize? Here's one common explanation Circumcision was a symbol of the need for the heart to be cleansed from sin's deadly disease. It's an external sign of the need people have for an inward reality, which would be purity. Why is it ironic? Please don't miss this. This is really important. Why is it ironic that Jesus was circumcised? Well did jesus need to be need to be cleansed from sin no so in one sense i want to say he shouldn't this is a foul what were mary and joseph thinking they they shouldn't have done this based upon circumcision is is tied to people who are sinners and and so this is a mistake because he's not a sinner because we know second corinthians chapter five and uh, he he knew, knew no sin not to mention what it says in hebrews oh no it doesn't say they did this because he was a sinner. They're doing this because they're Jews under the law of Moses. And the law says this is what you do. The irony is. He's not a sinner. He who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Is being treated as if he is. Why? Because Jesus when he came. Didn't. Abolish the, anybody know? Law, but fulfilled the law. Ah! I've never been so excited about circumcision in my life. Praise the Lord for circumcision. The circumcision of Jesus. Because he didn't need it. But he most certainly came. And here in this case, he's an infant. This is what his parents are doing to him. It's an amazing and important reality, circumcision of Jesus is. Because, think with me, make sure you think about this. He's born under the law, not to get rid of the law, but to fulfill the law. So by doing all of the right things that would be required of a Jewish man, even at this point, doing all of the right things, he is then going to be the great law keeper, right? As our representative so that he can represent us, we can have his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness of obedience to the law credited to us, so that God can then look at Pat Abendroth, the sinner, the lawbreaker, and say, Pat Abendroth, I declare you righteous even though you're not. Where did that come from? It came from Jesus being circumcised. And many other things, and not just that. But it starts there. Jesus doing all of the right things as our representative born under the law. So he followed the Mosaic law exactly, not to mention the the law in general that all humanity is under, exactly so that we could be saved, so that we could be justified. So the irony is he shouldn't have been circumcised. The irony of the other side of it is he had to be circumcised if he was going to fulfill the law and if he was going to be our savior. (laughs) So good. Merry Christmas. Maybe this year at Christmas time, it's going to be Christmas circumcision, you know. (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) But you see why these things become so important. They become crucial and vital for us. I said that that was the last one. Maybe let's do one more. Number nine. It's not actually in our text. It's in Luke 22, but you can just listen if you'd like to. The final irony is, He's born to die. He's born to die. How strange is that? If you have a friend who has a newborn and you go visit them in the hospital, the last thing on your mind if they've had a healthy baby is, oh, she's going to die. That would be awful and twisted and perverse. But we're not talking about just any baby here. We're talking about one who is destined to not just die, but to, destined to die a redemptive death. Jesus is born to die. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 22, verse 22. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Determined. That's in that engagement that he has with Judas. And Judas is morally responsible for his sin. But Jesus wants to make the point clear that he's not merely going to be betrayed and murdered somehow against his will. Jesus wants to make the point clear that it has been determined that he would die. And then Luke, in his writing and recording others speaking, says in Acts chapter 4 verse 28, To do whatever your hand, God, and your plan, God, had predestined to take place. Luke, uh, Luke, not Luke chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 28, it has been predestined to have Jesus crucified. That's ironic. King of kings and Lord of lords, born of a virgin, knew no sin, predestined to be crucified. And the irony is, it's because he's the great Savior who... Pays for our sins, to use another biblical term, who propitiates the wrath of God, satisfies the wrath of God, so that we're not held accountable for our offenses. These are gospel words. These are good, good news words. But isn't it strange that Jesus, born in a manger, is born to die? That's ironic. But we're thankful that it wasn't somehow a plan B. That before the foundation of the world, God has had a plan of redemption that centers in and focuses on His Son. It's an amazing thing. I hope what's been happening here, I hope what's been happening is, is by seeing these ironies, we see the significance of the cross and we find ourselves wanting to join with the shepherds, working class sinners. And finding our, we find ourselves wanting to identify with the angels who know the right thing to do because they're holy saying, praise God, glory to God in the highest, because he's brought us peace. Father, thank you for our time together this morning and in contemplating and considering these things with open Bibles, uh, I trust with open hearts as well by your grace, and, and now we are grateful to be able to have this all culminate in the high point of, of obeying Jesus. Jesus who not only was born, who not only obeyed the law, who not only was punished as if he were a lawbreaker, who also rose again from the dead, who also ascended and even right now is seated at your right hand there as our great, great Savior. We want to obey him now by taking bread and taking wine and remembering his great work of redemption. And so please allow us, even now, to to think deeply and to think clearly, to think biblically about the significance of the work of Jesus from eternity past even into eternity future. Help us. Help us to even obey your command to do this in remembrance of Christ And Lord, sink that down deep into our hearts so that we would be worshiping even as we're eating and drinking. Seeing Christ as exalted, Christ as our hope, Christ as our Savior, Christ as our Lord, Christ as our Messiah, even as we've seen in this passage. And that we would be resting in Him and not in our own efforts. In Jesus' name, amen.